Hello, and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Kay, and I'm joined by producer Chris Judge, a member of the class of 2005. Here on the Providence College Podcast, we bring you interesting stories from the Fryer family. Today, we're joined by Mary Burek, a member of the class of 2015 and a doctoral candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Mary studies how human activities and land use can affect wildlife abundance, movement, and gene flow. Her research now focuses on large carnivore communities, such as lions, leopards, and hyenas in Tanzania, and interactions with the people there. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I have to be honest, when I try to picture your research, the first thing that comes to mind is an Animal Planet special. Can you just, like, <laughs> do, you know, bust all our illusions and tell us how your fieldwork actually compares? Right, yeah. I, I think growing up, I'd, I'd describe some sort of Discovery Channel as probably my dream job, and it's pretty close. It, it might not be as... Um, glorious as maybe one of those channels describes, but um, when I'm actually in the field, it's a lot of long hours in, in hot weather, wearing long sleeve clothing so you don't, don't get brushed up. So lots of sweaty days um, up at dusk and oftentimes don't go to bed until dawn, um, sometimes without one running water or electricity. So uh, in some ways probably lines up a lot with a Discovery Channel show, um, but in other ways, maybe a little less comfortable. So, and, and I'm curious how much contact you actually have with animals or, or I guess they're the signs of animal presence. Right. So I do not handle any of these carnivores directly. So all of my data collection is indirect, meaning um, I either deal with visual sightings, often from a bit farther away just for safety standards, or I'm out uh, during the day, typically when carnivores are resting and so they're not active and I'm hopefully more safe, and I'm out and about looking for signs of hair, scat, track, things of that nature. So I do see them. Oftentimes, uh, thankfully, from the safety of my vehicle, I hear them a lot when I go to bed, but I'm not actually going out and trying to interfere with them or uh, you know, handle them in any sort. But you mentioned scat, and I just want to ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, what, how does this factor into your research? So the scat is probably the gold mine for me, um, and in some ways it's probably the least interesting aspect for other people. But for me, scat can provide, uh, first off, just the location of where I've known that carnivores go. Um, wherever there is scat, we know that a lion, leopard, or hyena has walked by. And when I take the scat and I collect it and I go home, I can actually extract genetic material from it. Basically, when an animal excretes scat, some DNA from your intestinal lining will come out with it. And so from that, I can get genetic information, which can then help me figure out things like how many individuals are in this area, uh, who's related to who, and who's moving where, uh, things of that sort. Again, items that would normally be on the cutting room floor of any good Discovery Channel program, but thank you for (laughs) giving us that insight. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your path to research? How did you get started? Sure. So... I I definitely got started at Providence College. I bopped in and out of some people's research labs throughout my first couple years, trying to figure out um, what it was in science that I wanted to pursue. I knew I was interested in ecology and environmental science, but I think, like most people entering college, if you're interested in the sciences, the most natural advice is to pursue something pre-medical. And so that's what I thought was the only option for a few years, but um, 
after a while, I, I started realizing that I was being drawn more and more to the ecology courses at Providence College, things like botany or the animal behavior courses. So when it came time to study abroad, I actually decided to do one of the field-based programs that are available. So I actually spent a semester in my junior year abroad in both Kenya and Tanzania, and that was sort of my first crash course into ecology and hands-on research. And then when I came back from, Provi uh, from studying abroad, uh, Providence College had just recently hired uh, Dr. Jonathan Richardson, who is an ecologist. And when I heard about that, I frantically was emailing him from abroad, uh, <laughs> asking already sort of to take me on as a research student. And thankfully, he did that. So basically, my last senior year with Jonathan was definitely a crash course hands-on, not only into research, but ecology research specifically. That's phenomenal. And so... Uh it sounded like you actually left to come back and find, you know, what your career really wanted, where you wanted your career to go. Oh, yeah, it was perfect. I mean, it couldn't have been more perfect timing with, you know, studying abroad uh, finally confirmed my suspicion that I, that I liked ecology and that I liked environmental science. And then to come home and have this, this new hire whose research interests perfectly aligned with yours was great. And thankfully, Jonathan did not ignore my frantic emails to take me on. No, I don't think many faculty here do that, thankfully. Um, <laughs> no. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience studying abroad here? Yeah. Um, it, in my opinion, it was uh, in terms of applying and getting out there. That process was pretty easy, thanks to Providence College. Um, I went on their website. I remember looking through a whole list of pre-approved programs or organizations, thing, things that sort of make the paperwork and the flow of things easier. And I knew I wanted to do something off the beaten path, uh, which in my mind meant sort of a non-European or maybe non-Australian countries where, or regions where people typically study abroad. I just I wanted to go somewhere else and maybe somewhere that offered ecology. And so I stumbled upon the School for Field Studies, which was listed on Providence College's Study Abroad website. And so I started poking around with their programs, and they have a whole bunch, um, things from marine science to, I think, climate science, things like that. And I was attracted to their wildlife ecology program, which also just happened to be in East Africa, which uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't say no to wanting to go there. So I applied and, um, you know, was accepted, I think, up to a year in advance. So I knew uh, a significant time ahead of time that I was going to be going, and uh, I spent my entire semester there. And what, would you, what did you do there? So I took, I guess I would, I would say I took classes, although it doesn't feel like the traditional classes where I went into a classroom. I was maybe in a classroom half the time, and then the other half of the time we were learning out in the field, but I officially took classes such as wildlife ecology, wildlife management, environmental policy, and I also took a Swahili language course there. Um, and basically the setup was at the beginning of my time in both Kenya and Tanzania, um, we would sort of do a week of intensive classes in a classroom. And after that, we would just be constantly out in the field doing daily field trips to uh, local parks or local villages, learning about the wildlife and human-wildlife interactions. And in both Kenya and Tanzania, there was also 
a homestay component, which was fantastic. It was just for a day, but um, really from the time you woke up until it was time for bed, you got a good taste of what local life is like. And then in addition to that, in both Kenya and Tanzania, I did a week-long field trip, sort of expedition, if you want to call it that, in two big national parks. Um, In Tanzania, that one was in Serengeti, which is sort of like, a, I think, a homecoming for many ecologists to get to spend a whole week there. But um, daily life was things like learning how to do wildlife counts, learning how to identify signs or tracks of animals, and learning how to listen to locals when they, when they talk about what life is like living with wildlife and how to sort of deal with problems that locals have that oftentimes tourists or scientists don't notice or immediately think about when you think about managing and conserving wildlife. That sounds very much like the research you're doing now. It is. Uh, that It definitely kick-started uh, what I wanted to do in my PhD. And I remember when I was applying to doctoral programs, I just thought if I could get back to this place I studied abroad and, and really fell in love with ecology and, and wildlife research, if I could go back, um, that would just be such a great, uh, I don't know, homecoming and... Um, being able to pursue something that I know I like is, is something that I'm willing to commit to for, for many years, as is the PhD program. This seems like a great segue to talk a little bit about your research. Can you tell us more about how you framed your project and, and um, what, you're, what you're finding? Sure. Uh, so, like I said, it, it was definitely born of my experiences studying abroad. So, when I was applying to doctoral programs, I knew I wanted to do... Uh, studies of of human-wildlife conflict, and when I found out about the Yale Forestry and Environmental Studies program, I really loved it because they are one of the few PhD programs that really fosters interdisciplinary research, meaning if you're interested in natural science like ecology, but also interested in social problems like human issues with wildlife, um, you'll be supported here. And with the help of my advisor, we started talking about where in the world I wanted to conduct this research. And thankfully, he was really supportive about me wanting to return to East Africa. Um, He had a a student graduate, I think, back in 2005 and has since gone on to start her own nonprofit in Tanzania. So she was sort of a, a natural bridge to linking my past experiences with perhaps current experiences of research. So um, he put me in contact with her. She runs this community-based conservation organization that tries to help mediate human carnivore conflict. A lot of humans out there have livestock, and um, if fencing or perhaps if they're out, if fencing is weak or if they're out in fields and perhaps uh, a cow or a goat strays from the pack, they'll occasionally be preyed upon by carnivores. And this is a huge loss for locals. Um, many, I think it's something like 96% of households where I work uh, practice livestock husbandry. So it's a huge source of income, and, and any loss is both culturally and economically um, devastating. So, so this alumni from my current school uh, works on this, and I thought, wow, if I could come in and, and sort of help her and help her organization with my research, that would be fantastic. So that's sort of how I got set up. And so now I'm out there and while uh, she's working on sort of the human side and trying to help um, educate and brainstorm with locals how to continue to develop in an environmentally friendly way, 
I'm going to be out there studying where these carnivores are moving, how human activity is affecting this movement, and then we're going to try and come together and, and see, see what sort of land manage, management recommendations can come from it. That's really interesting because I feel like when we usually hear about these sorts of human-animal conflict um, when we hear about these conflicts in the media, it's usually a situation where um, people feel like their business or their lifestyles are being constrained, be, you know, in favor of the animals. But it sounds like you're trying to find, use research base research to find um, a happy medium where both folks can, both both animals and humans can find a a place that's good exactly. For yeah, exactly. Um, I think oftentimes wildlife conservation can sort of err on the side of. We need to protect wildlife at all costs, and I, and I think that is admirable and valuable, but I think it often forgets that there are people that are living right next to or even amongst uh, this wildlife who sometimes don't get a voice or don't get a say. They're not the ones conducting research, um, or they're not the ones making decisions, and, and they deserve a voice too. And, you know, human development and human population growth has certainly been a negative factor for many wildlife populations, but, um, you know, we need protection, too, for, for continuing to thrive and continuing to develop, and so if there's a way to sort of mediate the two, I would love to be a part of that. What's a typical day in the field like for you? I, I imagine that, you know, we talked a little bit about your work, um, we are researching the animals, but it sounds like you are also doing a little work with, with people, too. Yeah, um, so... I can sort of describe what it was like for me this summer. Um, I was staying at a property, this um, nonprofit property, and they were actually hosting summer camps, which is pretty unheard of in Tanzania. So all of the dormitories were taken up, so I had to camp out my whole time, which was pretty fun. So I went to bed and I heard uh, kids laughing and, and playing all day, and I actually got to hang out and interact with them too. And um, see them see their first cheetah for the first time or their first wild dog. And um, it was really great to see the younger uh, native generation experience wildlife. Um, but normally I would wake up at sunrise, which is about 6 a.m., uh, get a quick breakfast, maybe skip it until I'm back for the day. Um, and I'd be out probably until noontime um, driving in certain areas, trying to find, again, signs of carnivores, so either a visual sighting Scat um, or hair, something of that nature. And if I found any of it, um, I would collect it or record it and, and sort of save that for data analysis uh, back when I get home. So my workday is a little weird in the sense of I wake up pretty early, I work really intensively for several hours, and then there's this sort of long gap in the middle of the day where it's hot and I do nothing because the animals are doing nothing. <laughs> and so that's my time where I can interact with locals and interact with people who are at this organization hosting me, and I can also uh, interact with just local villagers nearby. Um, and then at about, uh, so in the evening, I guess, it's sort of like rinse and repeat. I would go out again uh, towards sundown, again, because the animals have become active, because it's less um, hot, and again, look for more scat, look for more hair, any more sightings, and collect that data if possible. And then I go to bed. So uh, it can be a long day, but I can rest in the middle. Um, sometimes there's like a solar shower in between or maybe some laundry to do, but 
other than that, um, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I, I don't get to retreat on my phone, which is a good thing. So I can, I can talk and interact with people. <laughs> you said a solar shower, so it's, it's definitely outdoor showers in the camp. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty cool setup. Ours was sort of circular. It was, um, it was made up of like dried grass sort of as a wall. And then there was a rope uh, swung above a tree limb. And so you'd sort of pull the rope and raise the bucket uh, when you were ready for a shower. And then it would come down on you until the bucket was empty. And then your shower would be over. <laughs> um, definitely got to ration that water. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if we could talk a little bit about your research experience here at PC, because you, so you had this fabulous um, study abroad experience in Kenya and Tanzania, and then you came back to PC to work with Dr. Richardson, but it doesn't sound like your research subject here was as glamorous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think if you get into the nitty-gritty details of any research project, it doesn't sound as glamorous. But um, yeah, so when I first contact, contacted Dr. Richardson, I just said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of similar things as you are. I'm interested in how humans affect wildlife. I'm interested in wildlife movement. And so when I finally got home, we sat down and talked, and uh, something I found really helpful was he actually asked about specific skills I was hoping to gain. And I remember telling him that I wanted to, to learn how to use ArcGIS, uh, this mapping uh, program that a lot of ecologists know how to use. And he said, great, I have just the program or just the research task for you. And so I started doing the ArcGIS mapping and data analysis for all of this rat data he had. And so these were rats that were collected in an urban slum in Brazil. So it does not sound glamorous. They were vectors of disease, uh, something that you do not want to be associated with whatsoever. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed um, mapping the data we had and, and finding correlations between where we were finding rats and, and rat relatedness and things in the landscape. Um, so asking questions like how do roads, how do sewer systems influence rat movement and rat reproduction? Um, doesn't sound like it relates to my current research, but in some, in some ways it does because I'm asking similar questions. You know, how do roads, how do farmland influence carnivore movement? And so uh, with the rats, the goal was to kill them. Uh, with the carnivores, our goal will be the opposite, to save them. But definitely sort of transferable findings, and or at least... Uh... Yes, yeah. absolutely, um, which is something I really value. I don't know if I realized it right at the beginning, um, but Jonathan was a great advisor. He sort of, like, threw me in, um, you know, just, you know, gave me a task, um, in many ways sort of like forced me to just break through and, and learn how to do research myself, which I think is a great, um, a great thing. Sometimes research can be daunting, especially if you need to learn a new skill on your own. Oftentimes there are no official classes you can take. You just need to read online or buy some big book that isn't appealing about statistics, something like that. Um, and he, re he really helped guide me in terms of disciplining myself for a research career. He he taught me where to look online, where to look in books, um, and was just really great in guiding me in, in learning about the research process as a whole. It sounds like once you're done with your any classes for your, your graduate degrees, you, all the learning is kind of independent or through mentors and peers. Oh, absolutely. So I only took classes my first semester as a graduate student. 
Um, and since then, it's been all self-learning, which is really common in, in graduate school. So right now, I read about topics that are interesting to me and I, it, topics that I think are relevant for my research. And then when it's time to collect data or analyze data, um, I know about these topics that I want to pursue or these um, techniques I want to pursue, and it's time to actually try it out. And so oftentimes you're self-teaching or you're, you're sort of following a book that's been published. Um, and if you need help, a lot of it depends on interactions with your peers, so be it your advisor or uh, fellow students in the lab. So it's a lot of um, self-discipline and, and self-learning for sure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what characteristics above yourself you think led you to choose this path? I'm, I'm curious, you know, do you love the outdoors? Have you always loved animals? You know, how did you know that a, a, a scientific life was the one for you? Yeah, in some ways, uh, I feel like I always was drawn to the outdoors, although I never really had the stereotypical uh, hiking or, or camping every weekend growing up. Um, I, I had a big backyard that was surrounded with woods. I loved going out into the woods and like flipping over logs and whatnot. Um, but definitely as a kid, I had no idea that that, I don't know, uh, <laughs> was something that maybe like herps do or when they go out looking for lizards. But um, I was definitely exposed to the outdoors. I did summer camps as a kid, like junior ranger programs where I would go to a state park and learn about managing trails. And I think all of these little things sort of started to add up um, that when it came time to apply for college and, and even within Providence College, when I started really thinking about, you know, how do I set myself up for a career that I like, I just thought about the few experiences that I did have with the outdoors. I really, really enjoyed them. Um, I knew I liked the outdoors, but I never spent too much time. I spent a little bit, but um, sometimes I was just thinking back about, yeah, Discovery Planet show or Discovery Channel shows that I would watch, and I just really admired the people on there, or I just thought that was a lifestyle I wanted to, to pursue. And um, again, I think I just had a lot of small experiences, and so I had this inkling, but... Um, I really think my study abroad experience through Providence College was sort of my biggest realization. I had these ideas, but it never became um, this idea that I thought was realistic until I studied abroad. There's been a lot of discussion in recent years about the challenges that women face in STEM fields. Um, looking back on your career so far, what advice would you have for women who are studying science and technology? Mm-hmm. Yeah, being a woman in the STEM field is challenging. Um, you know, we we know about the statistics. We know that um, men typically earn more income. There are typically more men serving in higher positions. And, and thankfully, since we know about these statistics, the gaps are thankfully closing, although challenges and biases definitely still exist. Um, for any younger women, hoping to pursue a career in STEM, um, I hope they just know that there are a lot of um, awesome women out there right now paving the way um, and hopefully breaking barriers for, for future generations. Um, one thing I've sort of pursued or, or joined, I guess, since starting graduate school was I hopped on Twitter. A lot of uh, science folk 
have Twitter. And actually through Twitter, I found out that there are many more women out there in ecology, in evolution fields, um, geologists, etc. There are so many more women than I originally thought um, existed. And so it's good to know that there are a network of women out there and a network of support. Um, do biases exist? Yes. Um, and it stinks sometimes. But uh, thankfully, there is an increasing number of support um, and advocacy that's happening, which is great, I think. Mary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a real pleasure to talk to you about your experiences. Uh, subscribe to the Providence College Podcast in all the usual places, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Thanks for listening, and go Friars!